If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, we'll be reading verses 1 through 23. That's the entire chapter. Philippians 4. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I employ Eudia and I employ Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to be bound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you share in my distress. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Ephroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, you tell us the things that have happened to your people were for examples. They were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Jesus Christ brought the fulfillment of the age. And through him, we were given the testimony of you as our Heavenly Father. Help us this morning as we look back at the words and works of the Apostle Paul. Take his words and make them alive to us. Let what we learn from them build us up in our love and appreciation of all you have done for us through Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul began writing this letter to the Philippian church because they sent him 
a gift by the hand of Ephroditus. He wanted to thank them, to thank them for, for their love, for their concern, as well as for the gift. You can see in this whole letter an embodiment of great Christian courtesy. Paul wants to encourage them in their efforts to assist him. This letter shows, as Paul says, at last this assistance came, even though it was long in coming. They responded to Paul's need, even though it took some time. It's kind of like the trees in our area. In the fall, they shed their leaves. Throughout the winter, they look like they're dead. Then comes spring. You begin to see little buds and new leaves pop out, and the trees show they have life. So Paul knows the Philippians are showing life with their gift. Paul is the kind of pastor that shows his love toward his flock. He says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. He knew. He knew they were concerned for his welfare, but he says it must surely have been only because of some problem that you could not help sooner. He compliments them for taking the first opportunity they have to help. Now our text this morning will be verses 11 and 12. Now I'm not ignoring verse 10. We'll come back to it a little later in another sermon. In verse 11, we begin with the idea that strikes in everybody's heart. Why? Because it deals with contentment. Contentment is living a satisfied and happy life. There's no one here this morning that does not need to learn more about contentment. Paul makes it clear in these verses. He's not sitting in prison in a state of great discontentment. He declares, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Think about that for a moment. Paul's in prison. He's suffering all of the hardships that go with being there. Yet, in these circumstances, he testifies he is content. Understand, his contentment does not come from himself. His contentment comes from Jesus Christ. In verse 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through Jesus Christ. He says he can endure, he can overcome, he can complete anything. Here's a man a man of God, a man of faith, who has come to the point in his sanctification where despite his circumstances, contentment is firmly grounded in his heart and mind. This is the way God works in your life, to bring glory to himself through you. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new spirit. He begins by his Holy Spirit working through your new heart and new spirit to mold you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. What God does is change you through the consequences of your life, making you more and more content with your present condition. Through this, you learn to be more content regardless of the situations in which you find yourself. This is how your life begins to glorify him more every day. In this passage, 
I hope you will begin to see the importance of not railing against the conditions God has placed in your life. I pray it will cause you to learn to trust in him. To sustain you through all circumstances. First, I hope you will see there is much you have already learned. Second, I trust you will comprehend you learn through your circumstances. Third, you may you will recognize there are many lessons yet to be learned. In verse 11, Paul says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now please understand, this is no way of Paul bragging. He's not boasting here. He's not talking about his own ability. He's telling them this contentment in his life does not come because of some dumb act of chance. It's not the product of good luck. He also wants them to know it was not because he simply inherited the nature to be that way. Now, we all know people. People who seem to be more content than others. Some more placid, some more easygoing, some not given to anger, but even people with the best of natures can be broken under extreme pressure. I think most would agree Paul was under extreme pressure. In a prison for preaching the gospel, facing a possible execution, I'm not sure any of us can appreciate what Paul was really enduring. Having given his whole life to the gospel, and the only visible reward being death at the hands of an executioner, how can anyone be content in such a situation? Paul tells you how you can have this type of contentment based on what he has learned. He says, I know. And the implication is very, very clear. Paul does not say, oh, I've learned and it was easy. This was a development in Paul over a lifetime of difficulty. It didn't come quickly. It didn't come easily. It was a lifetime of spiritual training that produced it. It's the same as learning to write or read or write, to drive a car, build a house. To master any subject requires time and hard work. Most of the time to really master a subject requires many years, even a lifetime. Paul is saying this contentment he learned has required a lifetime. He went through many lessons in his life to learn about this contentment. A good many of those lessons were repeated many times before he actually got it. When someone tells me, I've heard that once and I know it. Or when I'm told, I'm a Christian and I don't sin anymore. When someone declares they had a religious experience and they no longer struggle with sin. I know I'm talking to someone completely devoid of spiritual understanding. How can I make such a statement? Because Paul very clearly tells you, Spiritual contentment comes only through struggle. The whole Christian experience is a struggle. It's a spiritual war. To be a Christian is to be in the middle of a struggle between good and evil. Spiritual learning is a progression moving from one stage to another. It's a growth process, not a one-time act of your God on your behalf. God in his great mercy 
gives the simpler lessons in the beginning. And the more you learn, the harder the lessons become. This is, not, is this not the way it is with any learning process? When you teach a child math, you don't begin with calculus. You start with addition. When a child begins school, are there not times when they fail a test? So what is the teacher supposed to do? He returns to the task of instruction before he retests. The purpose of education is not simply to give a passing grade. It's to teach the student the subject so he understands the material. But what do we see from the world and how they handle failures? Is it not to grumble, to complain when they fail, to blame everybody else but themselves? In a lot of education today, we see a dangerous trend allowing students to progress regardless of the student's understanding of the material. It's believed failure will harm the student's tender self-image. When the grumbling and complaining start, it's so much easier just to say, oh, all right, just go on. What needs to be understood is there can be no real learning without discipline. If you take a room full of children and give them a choice between learning and playing, what do you think they're going to do? I believe it will be playing every time. Today, many schools have tried to combine the two, but that doesn't work either. The mind must be focused in order to learn. Discipline is an absolute must if they're to learn. The discipline we speak of is a process of learning. It's the development of your mind. The scripture is clear, as Hebrews 12, 6 says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Paul never acted above this discipline. He learned from it and through it. God called you. He called you to exercise the gifts he's given you. He called you to a determination that won't quit, to a courage that cannot fail. This all comes through a process of divine discipline. Your response to this may very well be, this is a very hard and discouraging gospel you preach. I'm only trying to be as honest as I know how about the things of God. In the Psalms, David shows how God disciplined him. Asaph shows he was corrected by God. In Luke 2.52, Jesus grew in wisdom, in discipline. There is not one biblical character that didn't undergo discipline. This Christian life is a learning experience. And God is taking you through this process for your own good. He's teaching you his word. The process of discipline is always a meaningful activity. Every time you grow in self-discipline, you learn more about how to handle life. When you discipline a child, you do so that his life will be safer and in the end, happier and more rewarding. God is working out his purposes in your life. The Shorter Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Understand, everything that happens in your life, everything, is designed by God to bring you closer to perfection in doing these two things, glorifying him and enjoying him. Look at Paul in prison. 
under the threat of death. But this letter shows his joy over God's use of him in this darkened world. God brought him through so much that he sits in this prison in total peace, content with the circumstances God prepared for him. What joy it must bring to reach that stage of contentment in your life. What is the lesson in this? What is the great imperative for you? The thing that you must take away is that you can look at your life and see change. Can you do that? Can you look in your life and see change? You must be able to see that you're being molded more and more every year into the image of the only begotten Son. I hope you see the immense significance of this. It means the Christian life is never meaningless. No matter how mundane you may think your life is outwardly, inwardly, there is a never-ending spiritual growth. You're involved day in and day out. There's always something new you need to learn, something new you need to apply to help you glorify God and to enjoy Him. The spiritual life of the Christian is not like his physical life. His spiritual life does not take a downward slide as he grows older. It's ever moving upward. Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Therefore he continues in verse 12, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. His contentment is in the power of the Holy Spirit working in his new heart. As we begin to examine the fact that circumstances teach the lessons of faith, you might want to tighten your seatbelts. What Paul is pointing to in this is that the overall lesson is a doctrinal one. God allows his children to experience life in a multitude of different conditions. He tells you, I have learned, I have learned no matter what state I'm in to be content. He says in verse 12, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Paul learned the secret of facing both want and poverty and plenty. I don't believe any of us can understand this state of want, this poverty that he's talking about. We live in a country where even those who are called poor have far more than most people in the world. However, we can all imagine how bad it would be to be deprived of the basic comforts of life. I'm sure you can imagine how hard it would be to live in a constant need and yet be content. Paul knew what he, it meant to be without money, without food, without shelter. He knew what it was like to have, a poor, to have poor health, a despised reputation, people hating him and great pressure on him. He experienced hunger and thirst. In 2 Corinthians, Paul explains there were times he was sure death was at his door. He felt pressed past his point of endurance and even despaired of life. There were times he struggled or smuggled out. He was smuggled out of the cities to prevent him being murdered. He was chased from one town to another. He was persecuted, persecuted for preaching. 
Preaching the gospel. Preaching a gospel given to bring eternal life. Why would anybody object to that? He knew what he was talking about. He lived through all types of circumstances. Think about these situations. Trial, opposition, persecution, success, loneliness, freedom, imprisonment, hardship, discouragement, comfort, joy, good health, and sickness. These are some of the things that Paul lived through. In all of these different circumstances, God was there working, molding Paul more every day into the image of Jesus Christ. You see, in each of these situations, the the discipline of God, they are the actions of a strong and loving teacher molding his student into the type of man needed for the task at hand. In all of these different contingencies, Paul says, I have learned. I have learned. He learned from the discipline, the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father. You need to see God is working in your life. You need to understand that if you're one of his children. If you have acknowledged yourself to be a sinner, if you have seen your need of God's grace in your life, if you have called out to Jesus Christ with a broken and contrite heart, I can assure you this. He has heard your cry. He's working in the circumstances of your life to draw you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. He's adopted you into his family. He's working through every situation in your life to make you holy, just as he did Paul. Don't rail against the things he places in your life. Instead, rest in the fact he loves you and he is only perfecting you. This is what true contentment is really all about. This brings up a question. What is behind this approach to learning? What is its aim? You know it's God's plan. Therefore, it must have at its heart his glory and your good. God desires you learn. He wants you to grow in your understanding and knowledge. In verse 12, he declares, Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. God wants each believer as well as qualified as possible to testify of him. That's what he's working on with you, to make you someone who can go out and testify of God and of what he has done in your life. He wants you well prepared to work for the expansion of his kingdom. His goal in any life is that from every contingency under God, good comes to those who love him. So whatever has happened in your life as a believer, God has a purpose in it to make you more strong in your witness of him. He wants you to understand his love for you is constant. It doesn't change with these different circumstances. But please, don't confuse this with the idea he never changes your circumstances. There are three important lessons to be learned from changing experiences. The first is to encourage Christians to look back and seek afresh God's grace and to live in total dependence on him. Total dependence on him. Remember, that's what Christianity is. I'm believing and trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for my salvation. I have full dependence on my God. In this way, 
you bring God into your life daily and keep him there all day. Know this, there's not one part of your life that's left out. You are working to see that every area of your life is fully in accord with his word and is bringing glory to him. This is the real meaning of life. You're living in a right relationship with your God. What I find in most people, I include myself in that, is that apart from the really difficult times in life, there's the tendency to forget God's plan. When people have too much success or too many material possessions, when their security is really strong and they feel safe, when they have too much of the world, God kind of fades from their mind. I've talked with people who have fallen away from church. They will answer, they will swear they haven't forgotten God or his plans. However, you never see them in church. What does that say? Well, the scripture speaks to this. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, with his perfect fellowship with God and every need abundantly met, forgot God's warning about eating from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. David, in all of his success and wealth, forgot God, God's law against adultery and murder. Solomon, with all of his unsurpassed wisdom and all of its blessings, forgot about God's command against foreign wives and other gods. You cannot forget God. If you do, you will fail to live your life as a testimony of his love. There are also men who by their circumstances were forced to place their hope in God and in God alone. Elijah, threatened by Ahab, hiding in a desert with great needs, was sent by God to a foreign widow for three years where God provided for his needs. Paul, a prisoner on a Roman ship in troubled waters, depended on God totally, and God was there. Jesus, persecuted and under attack, with only a handful of disciples, carried out his mission always, always, in sole dependence upon God the Father. In the middle of all his sufferings, he completed his mission and was able to say, whatever is good in your sight, Father. What this clearly tells you is that God uses all the circumstances of your life to turn you to him. He wants you to remember your only security in this life is found in Jesus Christ. He desires that you constantly seek his grace, that you live by faith, in Christ alone. Not some blind faith, but in complete trust of God's faithfulness as revealed in his word. The second lesson you get from this is that God's goodness and love towards you as one of his children never changes. Isn't that a wonderful thought? God is immutable. He does not change. God tests all of his children. This is not so he can see your character. He knows your character. He made it. This is not so he can, 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 can tell what you're going to do in the future. He decreed it. His purpose is that you learn about his faithfulness through the situations of your life. This is the theme of the book of Job. Job goes through all he does, not so God can see Job's faithfulness, 
but so Job can learn of God's faithfulness. When Job saw God, when he saw the sovereign, everlasting, unchangeable, all-powerful, and eternal God, he fell on his face and he said, My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job learned. He learned about his own need through these terrible circumstances in his life. And he saw God as the only answer to his great need. The third lesson is through these various situations. You learn about yourself. You see in the things you face, the evil that so easily comes from your own heart. You're forced, forced to deal with your own weaknesses and thus are driven to God for help. Everyone here this morning, everyone has a fallen nature. We were born with it. You were born of the flesh, and even though God may have given you a new heart and new spirit, you still have the same old flesh. Your sinful nature is part, is part of you, and it needs changing. The responsibility for those changes is with you. It is only through a variety of factors that the marks of the sinful nature, pride, lust, greed, selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-pity are brought to the top where they can be skimmed off and done away with. There's no one here, no one that does not try for all they're worth to hide these terrible sins from the eyes of others. We don't want people to see us like that. It is mainly in adversity that they come out when things get really hard. What did Paul say? Everywhere in all things I have learned. When someone else gets more recognition than you, jealousy comes out. In poverty, a spirit of bitterness can arise. In wealth, a spirit of haughtiness may come to the top. You must be aware. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. There is danger. A danger of looking only to yourself. It doesn't matter whether the situations are good or bad. The path to a life of contentment is in examining each and every circumstance of life and looking at them through God's word to determine what God wants you to learn and then applying those lessons every day. It's not easy to do. In conclusion, I'll make sure you understand this is a doctrinal concept. Ultimately, in every condition of life, you must be driven back to the truths of Scripture as the foundation of your Christian life. So when you start having problems, God's just gently nudging you to go back, back to Scripture. God reveals himself through the Bible. He shows himself to be the creator, the sovereign ruler of all things, the father of his people, those Chosen by his good will and pleasure. He called you. He called you, one who is totally unworthy. He called you and you became his child if you heard and believed in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And once you're his, no circumstance can ever change that. Remember, your relationship to him comes through his decree. He sent his son, 
What did he send him to do? To live the perfect life for you that you could never live. To die the atoning death in your place that you had to have to be reconciled to God the Father. If you have heard the gospel, if you have believed its message, you are called. He gave you a new heart and he is enabling you by his Holy Spirit to live as his child. So I would counsel you not to quarrel, not to rail against the circumstances God has placed in your life. Instead, love God, place your hope and trust in Jesus Christ regardless of the conditions you find in your life. Then his peace, his wonderful peace, will fill your heart and his contentment will flood your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have told us I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What you're showing us in this statement is that our salvation does not depend on our desire, it doesn't depend on our effort, but only on your mercy, Father. Help us to see ourselves as you see us, and to know as you do what we need to live a pleasing life before you. Grant us the knowledge we need to put off this old life and to put on the new life. Grant us wisdom, wisdom to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. We approach you for all of this. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.